Matthew, but whenever you're in the Gospels, it's kind of hard not to jump around a little bit because there's a lot of details when you get into this narrative uh, of the Gospels that unless you jump over to another one of the Gospels, you might miss out on really what's going on. So uh, I am jumping around a little bit. As we move along, I won't be jumping around so much, but in the beginning here we have uh, today's message. I titled it the king revealed. Now remember that when we started out this gospel, I shared the emphasis that was placed upon the gospel of Matthew. Matthew wrote it with a uh, with the theme uh, in mind that he was going to, in a sense, prove that Jesus Christ was the prophesied Messiah, that he was the king of Israel that was prophesied to come. And so I've been titling each one of these messages something about the king. Today it's the king revealed. And we're going to see Jesus now coming on the scene uh, and being baptized by John the Baptist. This is going to be really an important time, an important event, really, we could say, in Jesus' ministry because this is going to be all, this is like the preparation time for the Messiah to be made known to the world. And it was really going to be marked out on that day when Jesus Christ was water baptized, when that Holy Spirit came upon him, that he would be marked out as the Messiah that had come. We've uh, spent the last two weeks really talking about John the Baptist. Uh, I've shared with you that he is the forerunner. We could call him the baptizer. Uh, There's a number of different names that have been given to John. But his public ministry began when he came out of the wilderness and he came preaching a message of repentance. He said, for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God was at hand. The Messiah... The king of Israel is now going to be revealed to the world. Just think of, just think of how that all transpired. The silent years of Jesus, him growing up, him not really even coming onto the scene, really, as far as what we read in Scripture, until he was 30 years of age. And now he was going to come on the scene and he was going to be really made known that he is the Messiah. Remember that 4,000 years of world history have passed. From the book of Genesis all the way to, really, John the Baptist, 4,000 years of world history has transpired. That's a long time. We know, and I shared about between the Testaments. We have the Old Testament and the New, and there was a 400-year period called the Silent Years that no prophet spoke. The, the only we had, with the Old Testament was there, but no prophet spoke for that 400 years until John the Baptist came on the scene. He was the forerunner for the Messiah. This was predetermined by God. And I have to think that 
as I read about the period of this 400 years, and really it was, it's been referred to as the Dark Ages. There was a lot of things that transpired during this time where Israel had moved away from God. And really by the time that the Messiah, by the time John the Baptist came on the scene, and even when Jesus came, this world was in a dark state. It had come to a dark state. Israel really was in a, in really a place of a backslidden state. This world was really primed. It was the appropriate time, the perfect time for the Messiah to come. We read in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verse 6, it tells us this, speaking of John the Baptist. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And if you go on in John chapter uh, 3, verse 16, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that, through the, through the, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they, may, that they have been done in God. Jesus Christ coming into this world that had been darkened by sin had now was about really to come and, and bring the light really to a dark and dying world. John the Baptist leading that. John we read was God's divine messenger chosen by God really to prepare the way for the Messiah. He was going to make the path straight. He was going to go in and, and make the crooked road straight. He, it, we read that every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain's going to be brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places made smooth. Now, this would have been understood by the Jews in that day that whenever a king came on the scene, that's what they would do. They would be preparation before that king would come on the scene. And they would go out just so as he was traveling over the road and smooth out the road for the arriving king as he came. Jesus, the Messiah, the king of Israel, was now going to be revealed in this perfect time. Uh, turn with me first off this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. And we're going to uh, look at this gospel this morning a little bit because I think there's some details in here that we would uh, miss if we didn't go here. We read in uh, John's gospel in chapter 1, verse 19, it says, Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John the Baptist, Who are you? 
And John confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. We see in verse 19 here, it says that when the Jews sent priests and Levites, if you look down at verse 24, you'll see that the priests and the Levites, that they were really sent out by the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees actually were uh, also involved with the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is probably who, who were the ones, the Pharisees that were in that, that sent out these priests and these Levites to go out to where John the Baptist was out there at the Jordan River and really to pose some questions to him. And so when they came out there, they began to question, uh, you know, who are you? And, and they're trying to really, and we'll see that they will begin to nail John down. In this Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin really was like, they were a, uh, it consisted of 71 men. The 71 men consisted of, of priests and, and Levites and the high priests that were in there. These were the judges of Israel. Uh, In all of the uh, religious matters, they made decisions concerning Israel. They would have been uh, really like uh, the high court of today is really what the uh, Sanhedrin was like. These are the ones that are the religious leaders that are sending these men out to come to John. The Apostle John is recording here in, in these words... Uh, what John the Baptist said to the religious leaders, he says, I confess or I declare to you, is what John says, I am not the Christ. And what I think is really uh, interesting about John is his humility and just his way of just letting people know. He's taking the eyes off of himself and saying, it's not me. I'm not the one that you're looking for. This word Christ actually means anointed. It actually can be translated in, uh, from the Greek also Messiah. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one you're looking for. John the Baptist was this faithful witness of Jesus Christ. And I, and I believe that every faithful witness, including ourselves, if you're a faithful witness of Jesus Christ, you never take the glory away from Christ. You never remove uh, the glory that is due to him by allowing people to look to you. We always point people to Christ. And that's really what John the Baptist did. He pointed them to Christ. He says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the anointed one that was prophesied to come. And I think John made that very clear. So then the priest and the Levites, they asked John another question. Look in your Bibles, verse 21. It says that they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And I believe that really what, why they were asking this is because they knew their Old Testament. These priests and these Levites that were coming out, they knew what the Old Testament prophets said concerning the Messiah, concerning the Christ that was to come, but they also knew what the prophets said about Elijah. They probably were thinking about what 2 Kings 1.8 said. 
And this really is the story when uh, King Isaiah, he fell through the lattice of his palace uh, one day and he was seriously injured. And what he did is that he sent his own messengers out to ask Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether he would live or whether he would die. And in all of that, God intervened. And God sent Elijah, the prophet, to go to the king's messengers and to give him the answer to that question. And Elijah says to the messengers, he says, the king is going to die. So they returned and they went and told the king. And after telling the king, the king asked this, what kind of man was it who came up to meet you and told you these words? And we read in 2 Kings 1.8, So they answered him, A hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Now, these uh, religious leaders that were out questioning John, they might have been thinking, Are you, John? Are you Elijah? Because we've read about Elijah. And then also... They might have been thinking about Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, where it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. John says, I'm not Elijah. I'm not the one that, uh, uh, the Elijah of the Old Testament. But remember what the angel told, and we've already covered this in our, actually in our first study on John the Baptist here. Remember what was said by the angel to Zacharias in chapter, uh, Luke chapter 1 verse 15. We read, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Speaking of John the Baptist, he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And so we do know that John the Baptist, when he came on the scene, he came in the spirit of Elijah. It's interesting that he came out of the wilderness with camels, fur uh, coat on, and, and a leather belt, eating locusts and honey. Very, he was a type of Elijah that had come out of the wilderness. Then we, uh, we see them also then ask the question to John, are you the prophet? Another question here, and he answers to the answer to that is no, I'm not the prophet. And so what was what were they asking him? The prophet they were speaking of was probably referring to uh, Deuteronomy, where uh, Moses told the children of Israel that when they entered the promised land, that they were going to come into this land and it was going to be full of idolatry. And he says to them, he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. And so really these religious leaders were really questioning, John, are you the prophet? The one that we maybe have been waiting for? And John says, no, I'm not that prophet either. His statements are very clear. He's making it clear that I am not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I am not the Messiah. 
And so then they ask him a third question. Remember that these men are judges here that are standing there questioning John. It says in verse 22, Then they said to him, Who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And then John quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 3. He says, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And then he tells them in verse 24, says in verse 24, Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And then lastly, they had a fourth question. But really, this question is really more of a statement than it is a question. Look in your Bibles, verse 25. Then they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? What gives you the authority, John? And really, this is a statement that they're making to him. What gives you the authority to come out here and baptize? In their mind, they thought it had to be the Messiah. It had to be a prophet that would come and do what he was doing. And so they were really questioning his authority. And John answers them in verse 26. He says, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. In other words, my baptism, John says, is to prepare the hearts for the one who is coming. But the one coming after me who you do not know is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I think that these religious leaders, as is always the case, when the Lord is the one that is working, their questions always come to nothing. And John responds, and he humbly responds, and he says, it is he who, he, it is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to loose. And we've already read that, and I, and I talked about that servant, and just that John just putting himself in that place really of even underneath a servant, I'm not even worthy to loose his sandals. How do you think that sounded in the ears of these religious leaders as he made that kind of a statement to them? These things, we're told, were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. I got a little corrected on this word. I used to call it uh, Bethabara. Anybody else do that? That was California way, I guess. And then we moved to North Carolina, and it's uh, Bethabara, right? Which is the proper way to say it. So you North Carolinans straightened us out on that. It's uh, Bethabara. But Bethabara means house of passage. Now, let's turn in our Bibles to Luke uh, chapter 3, and I want to share a few things out of this. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 7. I shared last week about repentance, that repentance is a change of heart. It's a change of mind. It's really, it's not just being sorry for your sin, but it's, it's actually something that when there's true repentance, it will actually change your actions. It'll change the way you live. And those of us that have truly come in repentance before the Lord, we know that's the case. 
We know that when we come with just tears of saying, God, we're sorry, but there's not real repentance, we tend to just continue to do the same thing again. Well, John was out preaching that message of repentance, true repentance, and he told these religious leaders that repentance needed to produce fruit. There needed to be a a change. You need to bring back fruit that is worthy of repentance. And we read in chapter 3, verse 7, It says, then John said to the multitudes that were standing there uh, that came out to be baptized by him, he says, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What we didn't see last week when I read those passages is how these religious leaders responded to those words of John. We're told that the audience that John had there at the river as he was preaching this message, it consisted of a multitude of people. There was all types of people that were there, but there was also tax collectors that were standing there. There were some of the temple soldiers that would have accompanied these priests and these Levites. They would have come out really basically as guards. They would have been standing there also. There were probably Pharisees that were standing there on that shore, and Sadducees, there were priests and there were Levites. So this is a mixture of religious people, some people coming out with sincere hearts, wanting to be uh, forgiven of their sin and be baptized by John, and others that were standing at a distance there to question. Those were the ones that John zeroed in on and said, you need to bring back fruit that is worthy of repentance. And so... I wanted to look at this uh, this morning just to see, so that you could see the response. After uh, they hear John's call to repent, uh, we read in verse 10, So the people asked John, saying, What shall we do? That's, that's like one of those big questions if somebody coming in and you say, Hey, can you tell me how I can be saved? We like those kinds of questions. Can you tell me how I can be saved? What shall we do? It it sounds like what I read last week in in Acts where Peter stood up and gave that message. And after he preached this message to the people, it says that they were convicted really by the Holy Spirit. And they, they cried out to Peter, what shall we do? They said the same words, which always tells me that when the Holy Spirit is actually working in somebody's heart, they're the ones that are almost saying to you, can you tell me how I can be saved? Can you tell me what I need to do to go to heaven? The people asked John, saying, What shall we do? And John answers in verse 11 and says to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, What shall we do? They ask him the same question. And he says to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. And so 
John is really giving them the answers to what true repentance is. Bring back fruit that is worthy of repentance. And so he's telling these tax collectors, collect no more than what is appointed to you. That's simple. Likewise, the soldier or the temple guards, they asked him saying, what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Seems real simple. Don't intimidate. I mean, these are the, these are the temple guards. You know, don't inti- intimidate anyone and be content with the way your wages. That was fruit worthy of repentance. And then we read in verse 15, Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What we see in in John's words here is that a true witness of Jesus Christ is a good steward of the gospel. He's always going to be a person that is going to point people to Christ. That's what John the Baptist did, pointing people to Christ. We don't see John here at all taking any glory from the Lord. He's not even worthy to, to, to loosen the straps or to carry the Lord's sandals. We read last week in his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the weed into his barn, but the chaff shall be burned with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations, we read, he preached to the people. Uh, we see that in Acts also when Peter preached that message uh, that you can read about in Acts chapter 3. It doesn't give you every point that he spoke. So when, P- when John came on the scene preaching uh, repentance for the kingdom of heaven was at hand, that wasn't the only words that he said. He was actually out there preaching a message about the coming Messiah. And so with many other exhortations, it says that he preached to the people. I think John was standing there probably saying various things to the different groups of people that were out there. He was exhorting them, really, uh, and which really exhortation or exhorting them is really urging them. He was urging the people that were standing there that day to pursue, pursue a different course, to go a different direction. That's really what exhortation is. And then we see he was also in verse 19. It says, but Herod the Tetrarch, uh, which was Herod Antipas, being rebuked by John. Just think of that. John the Baptist out there rebuking Herod Antipas before all of these people. Uh, He was rebuking him because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, we're told, and the evils which Herod had done. And that alone, just to make a rebuke against the king, that would cost you your life. And it did. It cost John the Baptist his life. But what that tells me about this man and his character is that he was completely sold out 
to what Christ had told him, given him to do, his mission to go out and to preach the gospel did not keep him, uh, it didn't cause him to shrink back from actually telling it like it was and preaching the gospel to these people and talking about really the evils even of the king. We, uh, I actually, just for your own benefit here to see a picture, you can see that hillside there. We won't, we'll read about this actually when we get into chapter 14 of, of Matthew here. We're going to read about the beheading of John the Baptist. But this particular uh, picture that I have here, this little mound here, this was built by Herod. And this is what it, uh, an artist's rendition of what that would look like on the top. That particular uh, mound or this fortress is where the prison was, where they believe that John the Baptist was held for pro- uh, probably up to two years and where he was beheaded. And that um, is right here. It was on this, in this location right here. That's where that's located. That's where John the Baptist, uh, after making this rebuke about Herod Antipas, he ended up there in, in uh, this prison there uh, where it would cost him his life. We read in uh, verse 21 that when all of the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was baptized, and while he prayed, we're told the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon Jesus, and a voice of the Father came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. You know, a lot of times people uh, say, You know what, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. And you know what my response to that is? You just need to read your Bible. Because if you read the Word of God, you'll see that though the word Trinity is not in the Bible, the Trinity is all the way through the Bible. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That triune God is seen really in Jesus' baptism here. We see how the Holy Spirit is descending out of heaven and really coming in the form of a dove upon Jesus Christ. And then this voice of the Father from heaven Uh, coming out saying, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so we see the Holy Spirit, we see the son, and we see the father all working in unison at Jesus' baptism. But this particular day of Jesus' baptism was significant. It marked out the Messiah. Uh, Up until this point, nobody really knew who that was. No one knew who the Messiah was going to be. When Jesus came and was baptized that day, this was to fulfill something that was necessary. We read in verse 13, then Jesus came from from Galilee. So John's out here preaching uh, this message of repentance. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus begins to make his way from Galilee. And we know that Galilee is up here. Jesus, most of his ministry, as we go through the Gospel Mount, we're going to see that most of his ministry was done up here. His home base was this city, Capernaum, where he grew up here was Nazareth. And as John the Baptist is preaching there, Jesus at the appropriate time, at the exact time, begins to make his journey, which is about an 85-mile 
trek from here, probably a three to four day journey, to arrive down here where he's going to be baptized by John the Baptist. 30 years of Jesus' life spent really in obscurity. No, we don't, we don't know much of really what was going on. Uh, he was the son of a carpenter. He was out amongst the people. He was growing up, but it was all preparation for this day. So when you read in verse 13, then, that's meaning that's following what's happening with John the Baptist. They're baptizing. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. He came for a specific purpose. This had to be fulfilled. It was predetermined. I started thinking about what that would have looked like, really, as Jesus came to that Jordan that day, seeing these people that were assembled out there on the shoreline, maybe seeing people down there in the water with John. And, you, and, you, and can you think of just the multitudes of people that had confessed their sin and they were standing down there in the water with John and being baptized. And though we know that water baptism does not wash away sin, it, it can't remove sin, it's only the blood of Jesus Christ that can do that. The picture that I have in my mind is the Son of God arrives there at the Jordan is that he's really walking down into this dirty water. This dirty water really is my sin. The dirty water there really is a picture of your sin and really the sins of the whole world. And in a sense, that water, as John was standing in it, as Jesus himself walked down into that water, it was like Jesus walking down into a grave. He was walking down into a graveyard because that water was a picture, really, of man's sin and the confession of man's sin. And every time John put them in as they repented of their sin and raised them up, it was that confession of their sins. It was that grave. And really, that's what New Testament baptism is for us. When we're water baptized, now that Jesus has died on the cross, we're put into the grave. And when you're raised up out of that water, it's this picture of this new creation in Christ. Don't we have just such a wonderful Savior? Think of the humility of our Lord to arrive there at that river on that day to be baptized of John, to make that trek down in that perfect time, to be marked out as the Messiah, but then to go down into the water and to actually identify with you and I. Uh, He was without sin. He was the perfect Lamb of God. No sin. And he walked down really into that dirty water, that grave, to identify with you and I. He could have done it on the, on the shore. The Holy Spirit could have come upon him there. But he chose to go down into that water and to be baptized by John. We read in verse 14 that John tried to prevent him. Do you see that? Why do you think that was the case? John saw Jesus coming down or saw him coming down into this water and, and he tried to prevent him. Why? Because John says, I'm the one that needs to be baptized by you. And and are you coming to me, he says? That 
to me tells me that John had the right perspective. He knew who he was. I know who I am. When I look at Jesus Christ and I look what he, who he is to me, it humbles me. And we know that John, even here and even in this moment, wasn't really seeing really even the whole picture. He wasn't getting, he was just thinking Jesus is coming down there to be baptized. I'm the one that needs to be baptized by you. But Jesus answers him in verse 15. He says, permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill, notice he says for us. Uh, For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then we see, then John allowed him. Now he understood, or he was beginning to understand. Jesus was telling John, John, you must permit this. Kind of like Peter sitting there at the table saying, you can't wash my feet, Lord. Peter, if I can't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And here's John saying, I'm the one that needs to be baptized by you. But Jesus says, permit this. It's fitting. It's necessary. It has to happen for all things to be fulfilled. Jesus not only identified with man and the sinfulness of man by going down into that water and being baptized himself, but I I think it was a picture ultimately that baptism of Jesus Christ of all the whole plan of what was going to happen. Jesus was going to come out. We're going to get into this next week, but Jesus is going to come out of that Jordan River and he's going to make his way out into the wilderness. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is going to lead him out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. That part is also a part of preparation for our Lord to do what he's going to do, to go out into the wilderness, to identify with you and I, even in the temptations that we go through in life. Jesus Christ not only identified in baptism, he identified with us when he went out into that wilderness and was tempted for 40 days out into the wilderness. He did that for us. All of this so that it might fulfill all righteousness is what Jesus was doing here. In verse 16, it says, Then when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. It doesn't really tell us who saw this. Was it only Jesus seeing this? Was he, did he see the heavens part and saw this dove? Did John see it and Jesus? Did the people on the shore see that? It doesn't tell us. But we do read that this, the heavens open. And maybe that was at least what the Lord saw as the heavens open. And he sees this, the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. This was the moment. Jesus being marked out as the Messiah. This is the one we have been waiting for. And suddenly a voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased.